0: Hi, this is Wes Huey. I'm the Executive Director of Strategic Communications at the Alumni Association and Foundation, Naval Academy Class of 87. Okay, I just want to thank uh, Claude Barabay and the Naval Academy Museum at Preble Hall for this opportunity to have a conversation with uh, Ms. Janie Mines, Class of 1980, Naval Academy Class of 1980, and Admiral Pat Walsh, Naval Academy Class of 1977. Uh, I've known Admiral Walsh for many years. Uh, he was uh, my uh, mentor and also uh, somebody I admired a great deal as a, as a commanding officer of VFA 105, uh, the Gunslingers, back in the early 90s when I was flying F-14s. Uh, we cruised together on the USS John F. Kennedy, and I've followed his career ever since. Uh, Janie I met more recently uh, before she was selected as the uh, 2021 Distinguished Graduate we had a chance to work together on a committee, and I got to know uh, Janie uh, in, both in terms of uh, the kind of person she is and the kinds of things that she cares about. Uh, one of the conversations I had with Janie was how important she felt her relationships were in helping her be successful uh, as a uh, as a person, and one of the people that she said uh, was most important in that in uh, in in that. Uh, in that time frame was Admiral Pat Walsh, and I just thought that was really interesting. Uh, when you think about uh, Admiral Walsh and, and Janie Mines, on the surface they look uh, like quite different people. They they come from very different backgrounds, have different have different interests, um, and and what you find out when you when you when you get to know both of them is how how alike they think in terms of. Uh, in in terms of how people lead, how people serve, and I'm going to give them them a chance to talk more about that in a second. This conversation is part of what we call our Becoming Blue and Gold series at the Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation. Uh, We have a strong belief that one of the things that the Naval Academy is so good at doing is bringing people together from very diverse and very distinct uh, and unique backgrounds into an environment in which they are all required to uh, come together under a certain uh, mission and under a certain set of values, uh, not to think the same per se, but, but at least to have a sense of uh, common vision, common wheel. Uh, and, and the Naval Academy is, I, I believe, one of the, greatest, you know, the best institutions in the country at, at bringing very different people together And helping them understand that they have to work together. Uh, They have to bring the diversity of their experience and the diversity of their perspective together in order to make the team as effective as it can be. So our Becoming Blue and Gold series is meant to tell, it's meant for our alumni to come together and and describe it who they were before they came to the Naval Academy. Uh, Describe what it was that made them who they are. Maybe it was their heritage group. Maybe it was where they grew up. uh, Maybe it was the kinds of parents they had, uh, but it made them very distinct. And then we have them describe what it was like to bring that very distinct background into the Naval Academy session uh, uh, setting, where you had to blend it with, you know, quite a few other different types of backgrounds and ultimately come out of the Naval Academy prepared to lead men and women in the Navy and the Marine Corps. And Presumably that experience that they had of 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 uh, uh, of assimilating with all kinds of different other kinds of people at the Naval Academy made them lead in a certain way. And so when we first started talking about this idea, we originally started thinking about it from the perspective of of a single person, a single person describing their experience. When Janie started telling me about her relationship with Admiral Walsh, I realized that we needed to expand the scope of this conversation beyond just talking about to individual people and rather bring them both together to have them both describe the relationship they have with each other and how that makes them uh, the kinds of people they are. So uh, all that is introduction to, to just hand the microphone over to, uh, to our very special guests. And what I'd like to do first, uh, Admiral Walsh, is just give you a chance to talk about that first part of your journey, uh, growing up where you did, you know, making you who you are. I'm just really curious about the kind of person you were when you stepped foot uh, into the Naval Academy in 1973.
1: Uh, Wes, thank you. I really appreciate the way you laid this out and the way you started the conversation because I I really do think there's... um, a, a number of points that you made that that describe the journey that we're on in the in the Naval Academy and the Navy career experience. I told Janie last week, there's nothing that seems as long in life as plebe And yet there's nothing as short in life as a career in the Navy in terms of just the um, the way you look back on it. It just feels like it's gone by in a flash. And you're asking me to think about, uh, you know, where I was more than 45 years ago closer to 50 years ago. And um, a couple of things come to mind. I'm the oldest of six. And dad was at a high school in Dallas, Dallas Jesuit. He ended up being there for almost 50 years. But he was a coach. He was a basketball coach, uh, athletic director. He raised money for the school. And um, in 1973, what I remember is that admirals were interesting to study, but coaches were gods. And and so that athletic model, that scholar-athlete model, that stayed with me um, for a long time. And it's still with me today. So it left an imprint in terms of just how to look at um, the world of ideas, the world of operations, the idea of leading teams where coaches um, get the blame and, and players get the credit. I mean, that sort of uh, very generous Uh, selfless model is one modeled by my father. Um, Interesting today, as I look back on it, was that the school that I wanted to go to was a school that we couldn't afford because of the income that came with being a high school teacher. But because the incentives were aligned, I was able to go to the same school that my father worked at, Um, because I got to go to Jesuit, I got to go to Annapolis. Because I got to go to Annapolis, I got to go to flight school. Because I got to go to flight school, I was able to have a career in the Navy in ways that I would have never imagined that included um, three graduate degrees. The point I'm making is that that opportunity for education came from somebody else. It didn't come out of my pocket. It came from either an alignment of business incentives or it came through um, the American taxpayer, but someone who I didn't know invested in me. And I've always felt like um, that investment opened doors of opportunity to me that I would have never imagined even what questions to ask.
0: Thank you, Admiral. Sure. Uh, Janie, I wanna give you a chance to talk about your experience uh, growing up. Who were you when you stepped foot on the Naval Academy in the summer of 1976?
2: first big brother pat i want to apologize for being introduced first you know he didn't say anything about it but i'm sure i'll be braced up later Ugh. so <laughs> no i'm just pleased to be here and i always enjoy opportunities to do things with with um everybody else is saying admiral walsh and i just want to say pat so i am um to to do things with pat because it it's always an opportunity for expansion and growth and sharing different perspectives. I always talk about my journey to the Naval Academy. If you think about it, when I first started preparing for college, the Naval Academy was an option. It was not nowhere on the radar screen, um, but I, my, fa- my family and, you know, I very aggressively prepared myself for whatever was available. And so we, I came from a small community in South Carolina that was the site of the Savannah Riverside and tritium production and scientists and engineers from all over the world and you just had the opportunity for an outstanding education, took advantage of that, um, you know, graduated at the top of my class, the salutatorium. We had about five hundred and sixty two kids. And a lot of that was because of my parents and the foundation that that they laid down for me, and and I'll always talk about mentally, morally, and physically. Because even though the Naval Academy was not on the radar screen, no coincidences. I was getting all the things I needed to be successful here. So morally, daughter of a Baptist preacher and a teacher, there just was not you know they were very strict. Um, it was interesting. Gentlemen, I'm helping some gentlemen work on a program for kids now. And they were, he was giving me grief. I went to high school with him. He said, Your dad told all of us up front never over his dead body. They never asked me. Hey, so now I know why I never got a date for any of these guys.
1: that high <laughs> I know what you're saying.
2: <laughs> so it's, uh, but they, I'm very much so a daddy's girl. And it, he just very subtly was constantly building messages in my mind because everything I did, I was first and only, and we would talk about that. And my parents were very active in the civil rights movement, and he said, you have something to do. And so, you know, they never instilled fear. They never said, you can't do this, you can't do that. They just, as long as it was within our values and served people, then you could, you could keep going forward. So that moral piece, the values piece, was very much so instilled. And um, I've told Pat before, and every once in a while it still rears his ugly head, I have a little bit of an anger management issue. And so I joined karate, and that helped so much from so many different perspectives. My sensei was a World War II vet. guy was fantastic my dojo. As you might, was all male. And I was the first woman to join. It was a it was a male fighting dojo, and it he really put in me one of the key things he taught me was to control your emotions. He said anyone who controls your emotions controls you, and just the the physical program that was required because we we you know we fought on television we we fought, and to be in that type of environment did a lot to prepare me for the Naval Academy. So when, even though I got scholarships to every Ivy League school that I applied to and the Naval Academy approached me, the Blue and Gold officer, because I'm Navy Junior ROTC, because it offered a scholarship, my parents said we would do everything that offered a scholarship because we're going to college and we're paying for it ourselves. So I went, that when they approached me and, and the culmination was a call from the Academy that said, are you coming? You know, once I had received the appointment, and I was still kind of on the fence, he said, you're going to be the only one. And I said, the only one of what? And he said, the only black female. Are you coming? And I said, I'll be there. And it was almost, it sounded like I took a dare, but not not really. I mean, I would looked at the engineering um, curriculum. From my perspective, it was the only place I could go- grow and mature as quickly as I wanted to mature. I feel like in my life I'm always in this race and I don't know what I'm Mm -hmm. racing toward, but it just allowed that type of maturation. So as I kind of, as I look at your background, I think one of the things that that is very common for us is just parents that made us a priority. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean, it's, and drove in both of us a set of values, not only the value of other people, but they taught us how to think for ourselves and not be driven by you know the whims of society that right is right and wrong is wrong. And... Um,
1: I love it when you tell your story because I get something out of it every time. Do you realize what it must have been like for 18-year-old Janie Mines to be looking at Bancroft Hall and the strength of character it would take to take the first step? the discipline, the resilience, the stamina, um, and that was, that was already in the package before she took the oath of office, before she finished I-Day.
0: So that's a great segue, Admiral. I, I'm wondering now if we could, if we can take this journey to the next, to that next step. Now you're at the Naval Academy. Admiral, you were a, a, a firstie, a, a senior when uh, Janie was a plebe. Uh, Admiral, you're, I think you were the first plebe detailer to ever uh, have women uh, in the detail. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just talk about what that experience was like for you, Admiral Walsh, uh, as, a, as a leader, as a, a brigade leader with women in the brigade for the first time. And Janie, for you, as, a, as someone obviously breaking barriers, not just as a black woman, but as a woman, uh, at the Naval Academy, I'd love for you just just to talk about that experience. What was it like for you as a midshipman?
1: I was the port battalion commander of second set. So I had an opportunity to um, to watch how the first set worked through these kinds of issues. I remember some of the interviews for the, the striper roles um, involved imagining scenarios of what it was going to be like for the first group of women that showed up. And, of course, <laughs> the, uh, there's, there's a lot of humor looking back on it because it was innocent and it was unintentional in terms of, of um, recognizing what we didn't know. But when it comes to, to um, that first summer, what I, what I remember the most about it was that um, the women in particular just wanted to be part of the group. They did not want special attention. They wanted to be able to just recite their rates. They wanted to be able to to do whatever was required during the morning at pep. They were wanted to to do what they needed to do. You know, during the day as far as classroom work, and then they wanted to just sort of blend in. And so, if there was a plebopo, they were there. If they were, if there were rates to be said, um, they were there in the middle of that as well. So Janie was around the corner. Um, I was 12th company uh, during the academic year, and uh, and so um, I thought I knew what was going on in Janie's world, and then I read her book, and it it really forced me to sort of sit back and go, well, where was I as she was going through the experiences that she describes in her book? So I had come in contact with Janie as she was going through her plea year. And uh, the irony is that uh, I met her in the, you know, in the hallway in Bancroft Hall, and then I would see her again decades later in the hallway of the Pentagon in the E-ring.
2: You know, it's, it's uh, Midshipman Walsh was someone that the women in general in my class respected because, you know, he was, he was someone who, you know, who basically came across like, you don't have to, I don't expect you to treat them better, but I expect you to treat them the same. I expect you to be fair. And that was, um, he made it, and was one of the few people to do that because that was not a popular stance back then. Um, And it's so much so that I guess 30 years later, we contact him, my classmates, female. Contact him about honoring him for having been the the one midshipman we all agreed that took that stance that said just be fair. And so when I saw him walking down the hall in the Pentagon with his four cute stars on, I was giving him grief about those. <laughs> um, I uh, I was like, there is a God, the good guys and it was it was so encouraging for me from so many different perspectives but I would I, Janice Buxbaum who's another female in my class and Peggy Feldman were in Pat's company and they always talked about what a good person he was and, and it, it just ties back to what we were talking about earlier with your the background and upbringing and the things that we're exposed to and how we decide to leverage that information to shape who we become. So it, it really, um, and for it to play out to him eventually being VCNO, Pac Fleet, four stars, and to have been one of the good guys was just something that was so encouraging even at that point in our lives to all the, the women in my class.
1: I was touched beyond words to, to get that kind of knock on the door in the Pentagon. Because in the Pentagon, no one comes in to say hello. No one comes in to say, <laughs> to say, you know, thank you or look back and reminisce. It's always about, you know, today's business and tomorrow's deadlines.
0: And you were VCNO at the time, weren't yeah. you, Admiral? So you were the XO of the Navy. So that probably meant that you were dealing with all the tough issues. <laughs>
2: and we show up. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which was a nice change. I mean... You know, the the team in the vice chief office works round the clock and, and they, they have some pretty heinous hours because they're responsible for administratively uh, making the Navy work and, uh, and and keeping track of the overall health of the Navy, the readiness of the Navy. And we had a number of emerging issues at that time to include uh, individual augmentees and, and how we were looking after them. So in many respects, we were drawn in from the macro kind of policy and budget into individual augmentees and how we were looking for folks. So we had a really good team there that kept us busy around the clock.
2: And one of the most memorable things for me in that reunion in the hall was he said something to me that even after all those years in private and public sector, no one had ever stopped being said to me. He said, well, what are you doing here, and how can I help you?" And he told me to come see him, and I did. And it was funny, I came by late one evening. He wasn't there, but his team was there working. And they, it, number one, it looked like the UN and the up in there. And it was just so... I've never seen people working so late, working so hard, and be so happy. Mm. And, um, you know, it was just the culture and environment that he cultivated. So, one, he offered to help. Um, two, I looked and saw this is the type of leader that I want as a mentor and in my life, looking at the way he led others. And so I attached myself, and I stayed there. So it And it has been beneficial to me, you know, for the, the decades.
1: It's a win-win mm-hmm. because Jeannie knows my family. Mm-hmm. She knows my wife. She knows my son. She's helped my son. And in the, the interesting part about this whole uh, relationship is the ripple effect, which is so hard to calculate. It's easy um, to, to go broad strokes and easy to go macro when we're in these kind of conversations about coaching and mentoring. But it's the investment in the individual that gets the most impact because the ripple effect now is that... We work together and and Janie is in you know the financial services kind of business which my son is interested in. Mm-hmm. So Janie brings my son into panels to, to talk about uh, a lot of the important issues that offer uh, a contextual understanding of what's going on in our communities, what's going on in our societies with the backdrop being financial services mm-hmm. and, and how financial services plays a role Uh, residential commercial real estate the impact it has on communities and and i'm listening to my son talk and he's talking like Janie, and it's fantastic um, because he's he's now benefiting from her years of experience all the hardship that she's gone through and she's sharing the formula of what it takes in order to be successful and she's investing that in my kid and and i i can tell you you know, there's nothing better than watching your own kids get on their own two feet, and and the pride and and uh, um, just the uh, the psychic income that comes with that kind of investment is hugely beneficial. So, Janie's a friend for life.
0: Admiral, I'm curious, something you said, Janie, about the attitude that you took about leading this this new cohort that was coming in with a class of eighty uh the first women i i'm just curious why why did, was that a conscious decision that you made did you say you know what i'm gonna go out of my way to to make sure that that women are treated fairly or was it just something that that happened naturally uh,
1: it's an extension of the last comment which is don't look past the person you're talking to okay if you focus on the person that you're talking to if i focus on janie i hear her story and and I see what she's trying to do in order to be successful, um, because I'm a firstie and she's a plebe. I've actually got something that I can offer now. I have something that I can give. In her book, um, she she um, she really picks on on something that I think is so critically important when you think about time at Annapolis, especially during that time frame. One of the things that that you've inferred is that people are just trying to get through the program and they're really preoccupied with self you know with just whatever it takes, <laughs> that's a firstie over there and as long as he doesn't talk to me, I'm having a good day you know <laughs> um, and and so they're not really preoccupied with a, with a, all these larger sorts of issues until they get to be firsties and then they've actually got um, some time and some reserve energy. Where they can now share with people um, what their formula was of what it took in order to be able to get through Bancroft Hall, to get through the academic program, and to be professionally prepared for the fleet as best as they knew it, and um, and so when I when I try and answer your question, um, it's not so much that I was focused on all of the class of women who were part of the class of 80 as it was the people that I was talking to and I, I do I think there's there's something to be said with focus, focusing at the individual level before we go and focus on the policy level I, I just think if you jump into policy kinds of conversations at that time it was women in the service women at the Naval Academy then then you're missing out on, on all the intellectual wealth that's in the seat next to you all the talent all the contributions and you end up um numb deaf and blind to to really the 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 treasure that sits next to you and the opportunities that will come her way as well as the decisions that she's going to have to make and and to be part of her calculus for how she makes decisions in the future um i think that's a that's a that's a real honor and that's something that we should never ever forget in the roles that we play in the fleet and the leadership roles where we tend to look up in terms of evaluating our success with how well we do at the chain of command above us and yet we forget you know it's really colleagues and those who are working for you are the ones where you can have the most impact and it's one of the reasons why I stayed in the navy as long as I as I did and that was never the intention going in, was the realization that you can have great impact on people around you. And it forces you to be a good student. It forces you to be a good pilot, because you got people who are all around you, depending on you, looking up to you, and want to learn from you.
2: You know, it's, it's uh, interesting. When you asked that question to Pat just a moment ago, I just thought, well, that was just who you was. You know... He was, um, it came across very organically and naturally just to be a good person, to care about other people, to be fair, to be mission-focused, very much a mission-focused. But also, you know, it was one of the things that that I talked about, you know, obviously being very capable as a leader in all the leadership roles and having a very diverse and well-developed and just, um, you know, efficient and effective team. But, and Pat mentioned it earlier, I loved who he was as a husband and a father. Talked about his family all the time um, and how much he cared about them. And so to be able to balance all that, as I look for someone to be a mentor and to help me make decisions in my life. I just, that whole concept to me was just invaluable. And he, he just has a, I just love his family. He just has the most wonderful family in the world.
0: <laughs> Janie, I've heard you talk about this in, in other settings, um, but I, I'd love for you to describe this again, because I think it's really amazing. It's one of the things that I think makes you really unique uh, and special as a leader. And that is just the way that you deal with, with the adversity that you must have felt as a midshipman, but I'm sure you've felt it since then. Talk about that for a second. Talk about, you know, how you, how you center yourself and you keep, you keep focused on the mission.
2: You know, it's... number uh, one, you gotta know what it is. Mm-hmm. So we talk about keeping focused on the mission like we all have that defined, and it's very crisp, and we have a singular understanding of what that is. And quite often, when I have conversations with people, um, I found out that my mission and their mission are two different things. So, um, um, so, so, a lot of times we come to a common understanding there first. Mm. You know, what are the values that we have in common? It's the commonality. It's what it is that we're trying to focus on together. Because I really believe that empathy is a critical part of leadership. And I need to be able to hear different perspectives, whether I like them or not. Um, it's it's uh, because a lot of times in hearing it, it reshapes the way I see things. I have a um, mentee that is a uh, white male Naval Academy helo pilot, you know, and, and we were talking about something, and I said something, um, I, I've got to... Some entitlement or something I was, we were talking about. It. He goes, I hate that word. I said, Well, why do you hate that word? And he explained. He said it makes me feel like people are saying I got something just because I'm a white male. Mm-hmm. And I said, Well, look, look at me. How do you think I feel? I get that every, I get that every day. But what's most important, you told me that that word makes you so uncomfortable. I'll never use it again. Um, we have the opportunity, like Pat said, when we meet people, when we talk to people, to hear them and to hear what's important to them and their motivations and what is driving their behavior. I don't have the time or the energy to take it personally. There are things that need to be accomplished. Um, It's more important to me to understand them and why they feel a certain way, and see if I can impact that so we can both stay the course and get done what we need to get done together. And two, I, I was talking to a group recently, and there's this kind of, you're going to think this is crazy, but this game that I play. When I'm sitting in front of somebody who's particularly difficult, I put my son's face on their face and say, how would I, if my son were sitting in front of somebody, behaving the way this person is behaving, how would I want someone to treat them? So it's, uh, you know, I've always said lead with empathy, lead with caring, not, not only lead as a leader, but start there. So if you mm. can do that, you can get past a lot of issues. I recently spoke at a gathering. gentleman wanted to speak to me. People kept pulling me over there to speak to him. I didn't understand why he didn't come up. Go over there. There's a big circle of people standing around. He's, um, and he... You know, when you see, remember in school when you had a big circle standing around, what that meant? There was a fight. People would tell me there was going to, you know, somebody, somebody's about to fight. I didn't even notice any of this. I, was, I had a, fl- a flight to catch, so I came over there and they said he's a World War II vet, and and I, you know, I was very enthralled with that, and I was so excited, and I said thank you so much, and for everything you've done, and appreciate you being here at this event. And, you know, I just feel like we all stand on the brave shoulders of the World War II veterans. And he told me how much he enjoyed my speech. And long story short, on my way back to the airport, I get a phone call call from the guy that set up the meeting. And I asked the guy before I left if I could have a hug. And you know me, I'm a hugger. So he, he he let me hug him and gave me a hug back. And the guy called me and he said, he kept laughing. I said, what's so funny? He goes, you just got a hug from the head of the regional clan. And... Everybody was standing there expecting a fight because of who he was and the things he'd said in the past but because I met him with empathy met him with caring um I get that that just never happened and I would have never ne- known if he hadn't if he hadn't told me and I still think the gentleman and all that he's contributed to the nation is very important and if uh, Pat mentioned it earlier if we if every opportunity is an opportunity to cascade your behavior. Whether, if it's positive with someone, you're cascading positivity. If it's negative, you're cascading negativity. And I'm hoping that in his next encounter with someone you know, that looks like me, he will stop and think twice based on our interaction. So a long story, but just empathy is so important. Mm-hmm. Understanding your common mission is so important. And just push the noise aside and work for, move forward together
1: so don't mistake empathy for softness okay so this is a jujitsu move that, <laughs> that she does on people and I've seen it in action uh, I remember there was, uh, there was uh, a case of a very public angry outburst that was um, laced with all kinds of racial sort of epithets and I remember Janie's reaction um, Janie's reaction to it was, uh, he's angry because no one's listening to him. Interesting. It, it, it really sort of um, uh, just takes a lot of pressure off the argument. It's, it's not a traditional move in the sense of going after him for what he's saying and why he's saying it. Instead, it's trying to put herself in his shoes and saying, he's angry because he thinks no one's listening to him so let's start with letting him know that we listen to him and and it just it changes the whole outcome of the discussion and it um um, it it really de-stresses in so many respects um, the the emotions of the moment and it gives opportunity for real solutions i think one of the byproducts of where we are today as a society is that through social media and other platforms and means, we've found a way um, to highlight without consequence our positions to the point where they can, they can be uh, very caustic in the language that we use uh, without consequence. Yeah. And the reason that we don't have consequences is because we've abandoned the idea of looking for solutions. Yeah. That's not the case with Janie at all. She's always got a solution in mind, and she's got to take maybe a, a, an oblique move rather than a direct move in order to, to keep the parties involved either in a negotiation or a settlement or a solution. Uh, if, if the outcome is a solution rather than distance, then the whole tone, the whole approach, the whole strategy, the tactics that you use in the course of a discussion or even a heated argument are going to be very different. Uh, they're going to be self-reserved in terms of the language that you pick and choose and uh, you know you're you're in a dojo here with with Janie and and she's going to she's going to move you to a position where you're going to feel good about yourself and not feel like you've abandoned your you know your interests at all.
0: So uh, you know I Admiral, I know that you've uh, taken a, uh, a public stance with, uh, with the, the thoughts that you have and the admiration that you have for Janie. I wonder if you'd share some of those thoughts. I know that uh, one of those was in, is, in, is in her book, No Coincidences. I know that you, you wrote a, uh, an endorsement for that. I wonder if you'd share some of that.
1: I, I did endorse the book, and I used some of the language from the endorsement in the letter to the Distinguished Graduate Committee when they were deliberating on on who to pick, So from my letter to the committee, um, I wanted to share with you that I had met Janie Plebe-Summer while I was assigned to the Somerset Detail as a first-class midshipman in the class of 1977. Years later, I had an opportunity to benefit directly and review her performance closely in her work as a highly qualified expert in the office of the Secretary of the Navy. Janie is a person of many qualities who has direct leadership experience and a proven record of performance in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Not many people have that. She has established her professional credentials. She knows how to prioritize the needs of a team, accelerate progress, and adjust to changing conditions, timelines, pressure, and still deliver results. In the years since I have retired, I have offered my personal endorsement to her book, No Coincidences, where She reveals a painful chapter in our history through an insightful, uniquely personal journey of fortitude, faith, and resilience. Janie Mines is one of the strongest women that I know. Her message stirs the conscience of the reader and provokes an uncomfortable but long overdue and necessary conversation about race and gender relations that is essential for the current health and future welfare of our alma mater, our alumni, and indeed all across the Navy. Today, I have increasingly encouraged her to broaden her perspective, to lend her steady hand of leadership, strong voice of reason, and clear judgment to the stirring debate on race in America. Janie, her story, and her journey as it begins in Bancroft Hall informs us Her words, insights, and judgment challenge us, and her steadfast moral courage inspires us. Janie Mines has the caliber and reputation for this highly selective and prestigious award. She represents the better angels of our community and the very best and brightest from the ranks of the U.S. Naval Academy alumni. That's who she is.
0: Well, you know, Admiral, lots... Yeah, go ahead and respond.
2: No, that was it was just when I when I um saw that I was like it was just so kind of you to take the time to do that. You know, of course he's very busy in Navy and remains very busy and I'm very conscious about you know uh, infringing upon his time mm-hmm. and that he would uh take the time to to write such kind words meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
1: long overdue. Should have done it 20 years ago, but uh, honored to be able to be part of it today.
0: Well, I I just want to thank you both. Um, One of the things that strikes me every time I I sit and talk with either of you is the, um, a little bit of the paradox that I hear in in the way that you talk about leadership. Um, You know, we often think about leadership as something you do, you know, dramatically or you do with conviction and you do with strength and, and, uh, and such. That's the, that's the standard picture that you get. When I talk with both of you, what I hear is there's, there's a vulnerability that's necessary uh, to be a good leader. You have to show that you are willing to listen to somebody rather than talk and tell. And both of you, in my view, Uh, I think embody that 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 willingness to you know you took a real chance admiral when when you reached out and you made a point to make this new cohort feel welcome that's a you took a risk doing that you know Janie, you take a risk every time you say hey i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can try to understand that person before i react in some Mm -hmm. in some way I just want to tell you both, I've learned a great deal from both of you in that sense. Um, And I wonder if you could talk, just to wrap this up, if you could talk uh, a little bit about what the relationship that you've had with each other, did that have any impact on on the way that you lead? The fact that you did, you know, take a chance and, and connect with somebody that didn't look like, didn't talk like, didn't come from, you know, the same background did that influence you and if so how do
2: you want to go first
1: if there's anything that i can leave the audience with when it comes to this discussion on leadership it's that uh, you don't have to wait for the magic moment you don't have to hold it in reserve it's actually something that you practice every day so it's in it's in the little things by comparison to oftentimes that that big leadership moment that's captured in a painting here in the museum. Uh, it's all that, all those series of decisions, coaching, mentoring, team building, working through whatever conflict, whatever resolution, holding the team together, coalescing on on a mission, but building a team that is resilient um, in aggregate, as you want to be as a person. Mm. It's the representation and the embodiment of your judgment, your thinking, so that in your absence, the machine continues. Mm -hmm. That people already know what your guidance is. People already know how you're going to react to a certain scenario that involves a certain person or a certain situation, because they've seen you practice it out loud over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, And that to me is what makes a team sustainable, And it allows for this notion of a high-performance team continuing to perform at a high-performance level because um, you can't start out that way. You can't save up for that day. Uh, You've got to actually uh, put all that energy in motion every day. So every day is an opportunity to build your team so they can respond to that big situation that's depicted here in the museum.
0: Hmm. Thanks, everyone.
2: You know, just a moment ago, Pat emphasized that empathy does not mean soft, and that that is that is so true. Um, mm. Empathy means putting yourself into the shoes of the other person to not only understand why they're doing what they're doing now, but also what they may do in the future under certain situations. Mm. It's just it's not only about caring, but it's about understanding the the impact of this individual on the mission so it is much it's it's much broader than that and as i watched him all the those years ago in the hall it was funny i, I told him recently that when the women came to the pentagon to honor him we gave him a, a big picture of the cockpit and there's a poem on the front of it called leader and we all signed the poem mm-hmm. and it was i wrote that poem he never knew that until then but it talked about his characteristics that that I wanted to embody. It was, you know, you know, when everybody else is doing, you you're not driven by what everybody else is doing. You stand for right, no matter how popular it is, and you do that publicly, and you're consistent, and you understand what it is that that you're trying to accomplish, but you under also understand that within the context of what's good for people, mm. so. I, I encouraged him to go back and find that poem and look at it again because it really got, I think it's like eight stanzas or something, but it really got at the traits that I saw in him as a leader. I've picked out a few people throughout my life that whose leadership style are just who they were as a person. What, he just, what Pat just described um, in terms of leadership, that's just who he is. Mm. Um, and I think that, that be, people say leaders are born, they're not developed, you know, I'm I'm not, I think it's a combination of both. I think the Naval Academy has an a, a, important and significant mission in terms of building leaders. Mm-hmm. I think that my parents laid a very solid foundation for me, but having good role models also was an important factor. So it's, um... Yes, the ability to watch someone stand against the tide. To hear him, I'll never forget the time he said to me, I went to school my entire life with nothing but men and boys. I never thought when I came to the Naval Academy that would be the place where I'd go to school with girls. And um, and I don't know if you, if we you remember saying that? I don't know if you were a midshipman when you said it or, or you said it at the Pentagon, but it was just... You know, there was so much change going on at that time, and for, and he'd never even gone to school with women. So for him to step forward and be the one, like I said, the one person all of us remembered as being fair and being consistent and embodying the traits of leadership that we all wanted to emulate, Mm -hmm. you know, that was very, that was very important to me.
1: I think there's strength and vulnerability. I don't think these are two very different sort of concepts. And what I mean by that is um, to stand in front of a group and and share what you know and what you don't know. That you appeal to the diversity within the group in terms of their opinions, their experiences, Mm -hmm. their skills and their insight. To help shape you as a leader in terms of how to view, how to respond, how to position uh, I think all of that is, is inherent in team building. So we shouldn't put pressure on ourselves to, to have all the answers all the time, because that tends to put us out in, in front of people with uh, a presumption about what we know and and what we're good at. Uh, I, I am much more interested in a climate where people do sense the leader is vulnerable and and the leader is going to deal with that vulnerability by being open to uh, conflicting points of view. We all develop blind spots in time in in positions of leadership, and if you know that in advance, then you have to actively go after what is it I don't see? What is it I don't hear? Uh, you you have to be willing to now um, lower that threshold where. Um, in our traditional hierarchy of vertically aligned organizations, there's seniors and subordinates. Uh, you got to help subordinates feel really comfortable telling you something that you don't want to hear. And if you can do that, then then they become stakeholders. They become very interested in the same mission that you're interested in. Uh, in the absence of that, they become very distant. And in today's email environment where we fire and forget uh, we've lost the art of having a dialogue and I think you have to demand a dialogue with people in order to to really understand where they're coming from otherwise otherwise people are content to go passive and um, and and that to me is a a, a very toxic mix that undermines the overall effectiveness of an organization you know it's it's uh
2: a but Pat talks about you know inclusive leadership and and um and having those types of conversations and interactions that you know they they build the skills of the people that are part of them mm-hmm. um they hear every on a regular basis not only what the mission is but they hear on a regular basis how it's being fulfilled and what what role they play and the overall organization of delivering it. One thing that I've always believed is very important is being very intentional about those inclusive leadership opportunities, um, whether it be a stand-up where we go through the plan of the day and talk about what needs to be done and who's going and who needs help with this. Or, and, and, and that has been, as Pat mentioned, so helpful because so many, you know, it was a seaman one time in the back of the room that raised his hand that helped to solve a critical issue because he knew about a part that was in a corner in a storeroom that, you know, the rest of us didn't know about. Mm. But he had to feel comfortable enough to raise his hand and make that point. Mm. And it is, I, uh, one day my division, the guys in my division, they were all guys back then, they they said, ma'am, why do you always say please and thank you? And I said, well, you know, it's a, so, it's how I was raised, and it's a matter of respect. I respect you. I respect your role. I respect what you. And my senior chief said, "Let me, let me just cut this short. It d ain't because it's a request, and uh, it's I found that out the hard way." And I said, "Oh, senior chief," but it was, it was. <laughs> it was
0: please and thank you doesn't necessarily mean
2: soft mm-mm, right mm-mm, <laughs> no. mm-mm, mm-mm. it's just you know lead with empathy lead with caring and you typically don't have to go to the next level but when you have to go there you people know that it's being done out of their concern we 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 as leaders have all had to take people through different levels of um Behavioral adjustments, dealing with captain's masks, you know, all those, those types of things. But if you have done it properly at the end of this process, number one, you hope you can prevent it. But if it just happens with this individual, they still say thank you. I've never had it. But then they didn't say thank you at the end of the process, mm-hmm. even though they were getting because they knew you had invested everything you could invest. In terms of helping them to turn their lives around,
0: Janie, Admiral Walsh, you know, just thank you for for this conversation, and you know, thank you for the model that you've been for so many of us who are looking for that, you know, that good model of leadership. How do you lead in such a complicated world? It's a complicated world right now. There's a lot of uh, a lot of angst and a lot of animosity in society. Um, I believe very strongly that Naval Academy graduates in particular are positioned very well to lead in that environment. and it be, it's because that you know folks like you sort of set the set the bar for you know how to lead through difficult transformations and transitions. Um, I want to thank you both for this conversation. Again, becoming blue and gold is is the theme that that we're uh, that we're trying to. Uh, inspire the stories of of our alumni from across the the world, actually, uh, to come and talk about what it was like for them uh, to come into this environment that's so unique, and then go out into the world and lead and serve. Um, I want to thank you both for being a model of that. Uh, I'm Wes Huey. I'm the uh, Director of Executive Communications uh, at the Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation. I want to thank, again, Claude Barabay and the Naval History Museum at Preble Hall for, for this opportunity to partner. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval
1: Academy.